And a pleasant good afternoon to you, Jaden Daly, back with you on the Daily Dose of Hoops podcast. NCAA tournament week in full swing in the bubble in Indianapolis and in our home base here in New York. Two local teams in action dancing this year. One of them is the Scarlet Knights of Rutgers University. The 30-year drought is finally over. Steve Peichel, Geo Baker, Ron Harper Jr., and the rest of the residents of Piscataway will tip off Friday night. 920 on TBS, taking on the Clemson Tigers and head coach Brad Brownell and helping us preview Clemson, someone who has seen the Tigers more often than we have up here in New York. He covers them for Sports Talk Media Network. In the past, he's done some other work on our sister site, College Hoops Digest, and that's Justin Mattis. He joins us now. Justin, thank you so much for coming on and spending some time with us. I'm more than glad to do it. It's one of the most wonderful times of the year. March Madness is finally back. And after a two-year layoff, possibly the most gratifying NCAA tournament that we in the media and also as just fans of the game ourselves can truly experience and savor. And Justin, we begin with Clemson, number seven seed in the Midwest Regional, one of eight ACC tournament teams that are in this NCAA tournament. And when you look at the job that the Tigers have done, a very defense-minded unit. Not much as far as rebounding is concerned, but the defensive efficiency has been off the charts. What are your first impressions of what Brad Brownell has been able to do with this team this season? I mean, it was kind of a good thing where he got his uh, one of his big guys back. Amir Sims, obviously, after last season was – looking at the NBA draft and given everything that's unfolded in the past year, there was a little bit more flexibility for those players wanted to enter into the draft. So I think getting him back was big, not only offensively, but especially on the defensive end, he just brings a whole lot of energy. He's one of those three seniors on this ball club, along with Clyde Trapp and Jonathan Bear, who is a transfer in from a UNC Asheville. But uh, Sims is where it all begins. He's the, post presence so to speak he brings that extra when they need it late down in the stretch i actually misspoke it's seven teams from the acc in this year's field of 68 but when you look at clemson justin and you look at the similarities to rutgers as far as the stat sheet and how both teams play and their points of emphasis on the defensive end as well as a practical offensive game is this a very favorable matchup for the Tigers? Does playing a mirror image, so to speak, Justin, play into their hands a little more? I mean, yes and no, because in some ways there would be some things that you can pick up on tendencies. Obviously, when you go through practice and things like that, you look at film and see some things like, okay, we will recognize this. If they say they move the ball to this side of the floor, we know they're going to act this way, that kind of thing. But uh, – on the other side, there's also things that Rutgers can recognize from what Clemson does, you know. So it's kind of a, a double-edged sword, so to speak, in that aspect, I believe. We're talking to Justin Mattis of Sports Talk Media Network covering Clemson. And the Tigers are Rutgers' first NCAA tournament opponent this Friday night in Indianapolis. Justin, besides Amir Sims, you look at Alamir Dawes and you look at Nick Honor, who some – Fans here and some of our our audience will remember from his freshman season at Fordham, the big three, so to speak, for the Tigers. Does the lack of a fourth option, at least just looking at the stat sheet blindly and 
not knowing what each player brings to the table, does the lack of a fourth option potentially spell out some kind of danger for the Tigers against a Rutgers team that's multifaceted and, and balanced in its own right offensively? The fourth option, I guess, so to speak, the fourth uh, part of the equation for Clemson kind of has been a little bit off. That would be Alex Hemingway. He's one of their uh, sharp shooters. You know, he actually suffered a broken nose in their last regular season game at home um, a week or so ago against Pitt, left at the first media timeout of the game and never came back. But he – made his return last week during the ACC tournament, but he's been quiet, you know, these past couple of games. But normally when he is able to get going, get into double figures, that usually helps Clemson get pointed toward the uh, victory column. And you look also at what Rutgers has done down the stretch, maybe not the easiest path to the tournament for the Starlet Knights, a little inconsistency on both ends of the floor. Do you think Clemson is getting this group at the right time if there is one? I mean, sometimes it – I guess I'll say yes and no. I know, I'm sorry to be that guy, but – Oh, no some, worries. Yeah, it's because it's, sometimes it's easy to read some teams, oh, they're on a six-game losing streak coming in. They still make the tournament with ease or whatnot. And then all of a sudden you'll see these teams hit another switch when the – big dance cranks up you know sometimes it's hard to read whether you're catching a team at the right time or not so I mean if you're a Clemson fan that's what you're hoping is that you're catching Rutgers at a good time but if you're a Rutgers fan obviously you're like no I don't think they're catching us at the wrong time talking to Justin Mattis from the Sports Talk Media Network covers Clemson and helping us shed some further light on the Tigers as Rutgers prepares to opening NCAA tournament against them Friday night, Justin. For Clemson, what does this team need to do to execute Friday and walk away with a victory and most likely face Houston unless Cleveland State brings an upset in the, in the 215 matchup? Uh, they got to find some sort of presence in the post. If you go back and watch their only ACC tournament game last week against Miami where they lost by three, they did not capitalize on an opportunity to wear down the, an undermanned hurricane team, which only had about eight players they could run out there due to injuries and other reasons. They did not take a chance to try and attack the post. They kind of fell in love with the three ball. They made their first four shots of the game last Wednesday, all from three-point land, two from Hunter Tyson, two from Amir Sims. And as my colleague Matt Smith said last week on the show, when we were recapping the game against Miami, it was both a blessing and a curse. It was good that they were able to get off to that start, but a curse because sometimes the teams fall in love with the three ball. It can come back to haunt you if you don't continue to knock them down. But I would say attack the post, find some sort of post presence with Sims and if possible, like a Jonathan bear that those type of guys, even a PJ hall, he's a freshman for the Tigers ball club. He'll see some minutes. Uh, out of uh, Dorman High School. He's a four-time state champion at the 5A level here in the state of South Carolina. Hall is going to gradually come into his own, especially after Sims graduates following the season. But you got to attack the post. You can't be one-dimensional and just continue to just jack up threes because if that well is going to run dry eventually, whether it's in that game or the next one, if you get that far. 
you got to find a post presence. And to follow that up, how much more important is it going to be to, to go at Miles Johnson and try to draw fouls against him in the paint, knowing that Rutgers doesn't have as deep a front line? Mamadou Decore only plays several minutes a game. And behind him, you look at Dean Reber and you look at Malat Mack, the two freshmen, and, and they're relatively unseasoned. How much of a, of a point of emphasis in the game plan is it going to be for Brownell and his staff to go after Miles Johnson? And just as a neutral observer here, I would hope that would be a big key, of, a big point of emphasis because you saw what happened last week when they continued to put up threes and they didn't fall. And you, you had an undermanned team on the ropes and yet you went cold twice in the second half. During those two cold spells, they each lasted two minutes or more. You can't have that especially when it comes to the big dance. You can't go cold like that. But, yeah, you got to you gotta go at the big guy if you're Clemson. You attack with Sims. He's, what, I think 6'7", six, 6'8", six, something like that. He's got some height on him and some muscle. You also have P.J. Hall, who I mentioned a little bit ago. He's in that same height category, maybe a couple inches taller than Sims. He's a freshman. You got to somehow use those guys, Jonathan Barry, that kind of thing. Those guys have some height on them to go at the rim and trying to add another facet to your game, you know, that hasn't been used the last couple of weeks. We'll shift gears a little bit, and we're talking to Justin Mattis of Sports Talk Media Network, who is helping us take a closer look at Clemson as Rutgers prepares to open the NCAA tournament against the Tigers Friday night. Justin, you look at this tournament from an ACC perspective on the whole. Is it surreal to go through this field and not see Duke in it for the first time since 1995? Yeah, and the last time that you mentioned the 1995, I was a wee young little lad, you know. <laughs> but it's so it's so weird. But uh, welcome to the world we live in nowadays. Hopefully, we kind of get away from the weirdness and more to, you know, more toward the brighter side of things. Hopefully, very soon. But yeah, it's still so surreal to not see Duke and I'd mention Kentucky. I think last time that Duke and Kentucky both missed. The big dance was sometime in the mid-70s. I don't know the year, but it's still so weird to not see Coach K, see the Blue Devils out there as one of the big names that's always talked about. So, I mean, hey, any, as the saying goes, anything can happen. And we're, we're seeing that and we're living that right now. And going into the other six ACC teams, you look at Virginia now, a question mark considering the Cavaliers' recent COVID issues being knocked out of the ACC tournament before their semifinal game against Georgia Tech due to a positive test and a concern as to whether or not Tony Bennett would be able to get his group ready. They're still in quarantine right now and probably won't get to Indianapolis for another day or two before the Saturday matchup against Ohio. North Carolina is in an 8-9 game against Wisconsin. Oddly enough, it's a a rematch of the 2015 Sweet 16 game that the Badgers got the better of the Tar Heels in. Also, you look at Florida State as a four seed against UNC Greensboro, Virginia Tech as a number 10 seed against Florida in the battle of Dorian Finney-Smith and Kerry Blackshear's two programs at the undergrad and graduate level. Justin, on the whole for the ACC, the other six teams in it, 
who would you say has the best shot to come out of the first weekend? And we'll also look at Georgia Tech, the ACC tournament champion as the ninth seed. One team that kind of caught my eye with how they were seeded out of the ACC was Virginia Tech. And I guess it's partly because I live here in Spartanburg and I've essentially grown up on college basketball, not only keeping track with the ACC, but uh, locally with Walford College, which was where Mike Young was prior uh-huh. to arriving at Virginia Tech and watching how his teams work, not only on offense, but on the defensive end. I think there was a quote yesterday from, I think, David Teal posted where Justin Mutz was quoted saying to the media that Mike Young was a mad scientist on the offensive end of the floor. But I think Virginia Tech is not getting as much credit as they should get, obviously, because they had a kind of a string of bad luck to end their season there, had a little lengthy layoff, and then went one and out in the ACC tournament at the hands of uh, their the opponents escaping me right now. But Carolina. Carolina, that's right. Sorry. But uh, Virginia Tech's not getting as much credit as I think they should, obviously, because they're going up against a very strong Florida team. Also, I think North Carolina has a great shot. I saw them – actually, I listened to that game on my way back from Greensboro last Wednesday night when my stay was – when I found out my stay was abbreviated. I was listening to that game the whole way back home, and I was just surprised at how – much they just blew Notre Dame out of the water I knew North Carolina was strong I just had no idea it was going to escalate that quickly to quote Ron Burgundy Uh, but but yeah I'd say Tech and North Carolina also FSU Leonard Hamilton and that's something you can always bet on what he does with the Seminoles the past couple years have been really strong I got to see FSU last season obviously a couple weeks before everything blew up and they came down to Little John and lost to Clemson. But, I mean, Leonard Hamilton always does a phenomenal job with the Seminoles. The offense isn't as flashy as some of these other teams that play, but always seems most of the time to get the job done. And don't sell UNC Greensboro short out of the SOCON. I guess I'm a little biased in saying that. I haven't watched a lot of SOCON basketball growing up as well. So those are the three teams that kind of jump out at me is North Carolina, Virginia Tech, and FSU. And one more, Justin. What about Syracuse? This uh, seems like another year where Jim Beheim gets into the tournament when there's a lot of speculation as to whether or not the Orange deserves a bid. And when he gets a double-digit seed, he's always able to pull off the magic and make a run in the tournament. How do you feel about Syracuse as the 11 seed in the same quadrant of the Midwest Regional that Clemson is in and potentially – could face the Tigers in the Sweet 16 if he's able to get past San Diego State and West Virginia, most likely West Virginia. Well, I mean, that would be an interesting matchup because it would be the third time those teams had seen each other this season because uh, Clemson won on their home floor and then Syracuse won a couple of weeks later on their home floor at the Carrier Dome. So, I mean, it just seemed like a tale of two games lit quite literally between those two ball clubs, and I – as a basketball fan, I would like to see the trifecta completed, so to speak, and see how it would play out. But anything can happen when it comes to the NCAA tournament. That's why I'm just glad it's back and I'm ready to take in some basketball. I think we all are, and we'll find out for sure when the ball is tipped at 920 Friday night, TBS. 
Rutgers and Clemson 7-10 matchup in the Midwest Regional and Justin Mattis of Sports Talk Media Network helped us figure out a little more about the Tigers and what Brad Brownell will match up against Steve Peichel with. Justin, thank you so much for coming on and spending some time with us. Good luck this weekend and stay safe. Yes, sir. You do the same, Jaden. Thank you. Welcome back to the Daily Dose of Hoops podcast. Jaden Daly here with you previewing the NCAA tournament. We just wrapped up having Justin Mattis on from Sports Talk Media Network to take a closer look at the Clemson Tigers as Rutgers faces Brad Brownell's team Friday night in Indianapolis. One of the other popular 5-12 upsets elsewhere on the bracket features 23-1 Winthrop against reigning Big East powerhouse Villanova, minus Colin Gillespie, and with perhaps a slightly hampered Justin Moore. He's supposedly going to be good to go, but we'll see how that plays out. And among the many things we'll be talking about in this second part of the podcast will be the Eagles' chances as the trendy upset pick. To do that, we bring in someone from our sister site, College Hoops Digest. In 2017, he worked for us, and he covered North Carolina's first two games in Greenville and route to the national championship that the Tar Heels ultimately won against Gonzaga that season four years ago, covering the Big South, covering a lot of Southern basketball and a great mind in his own right. It's Brian Wilmer. Brian, thank you for coming on and spending some time with us. Thank you for having me. I'm not sure about the great mind thing, but I'll take it. Well, I think everybody with a pulse and a general knowledge of college basketball would qualify as that. So here we go, Brian, and we'll get into Winthrop, Big South Conference champions, 23-1, and one, the 12 seed taking on Villanova with a potential matchup against Illinois in the Sweet 16 if the seeds hold the form in the top half of that quadrant. Brian, Pat Kelsey has had a, a great last couple of years in Rock Hill. What has set this team apart? perhaps from last year's group, which would have gone to the tournament as well had COVID not shut everything down. I think there are a number of things. I think the first thing is this kind of insular focus that they've had the entire year. And anytime you talk to Pat or any of his players, particularly his players, because they sound a lot like he does, they talk about this focus. And I think that's really the one thing that sets them apart from really any team in this bracket, uh, especially from last year's team. They seem so just hyper locked into everything their coaches tell them, everything that they have in front of them. They talk about next thing up, next team up, whatever else all the time. And you can go back all the way through the Big South tournament, even into the regular season. And anytime you talk to an opponent about this Winthrop team, the one thing they'll tell you is that they are consistent. They are constantly focused on what they do, not what anybody else does, but what they do. And the fact that he could get this team so focused on just what they do, not any of the outside noise or any of the national media that descended on Rock Hill earlier in the season when they were undefeated or any of that. It's really a testament to Pat, to his coaching staff, and to that group of leaders that he refers to as leadership council. And what two of those, Chandler Vaudrin and DJ Burns in particular, have really led this team Chandler's division two transfer leading the nation in triple doubles. He's been among the assist leaders all season. How much more integral does he become with Villanova not having Colin Gillespie and probably having to run with Moore and Chris Archidiakono, Ryan's younger brother, splitting time at the point? The big thing about Chandler is just his versatility. And if you look at him, of course, the national story is going to be Oh, they have a six foot seven point guard and everybody's going to focus on that immediately. 
The big thing about him is that he can not only play one through five, he can defend one through five. So you're not going to see a, a normal conventional point guard on point guard matchup in a lot of cases. Uh, Chandler can back down a smaller guard. He can go in among the post players and score at the basket. He can shoot three pointers. He can do all these different things. And we've talked about his proclivity for triple doubles, uh, seven in his career. He's at three this year. And just the, the court vision he has and the ability to score from anywhere, to assist from anywhere, and really just be that, I guess, Swiss Army knife type player for Kelsey has been such a huge deal for this team. And then you look at Burns. He's a Tennessee transfer. He's a former four-star kid. And you don't normally see guys like that in the Big South. But he's so nimble for a big guy, which is unusual. He's a 275-pound center. But still, he takes jump hooks. Uh, he'll shoot from mid-range. He's quicker than you'd imagine. He's getting better defensively, which I think has played a large role in his added playing time this year. The fact that he's averaging 10 a game um, you know, in just 15 and a half minutes really kind of shows how efficient he is as a player. And his shooting, I, I don't know what it is about that guy, but it seems as though there are certain spots on the floor from which he can't miss and he presents the challenge if you're trying to play away from the basket uh, on him he'll just make shots over you it's it's a really strange team the way it's constructed but it's been incredibly successful talking to brian wilmer of college who's digest taking a look at one of the popular 512 upset picks winthrop potentially against villanova the wildcats down colin gillespie and justin moore still rehabbing from a sprained ankle suffered in the regular season finale against providence Brian, overall, we mentioned Vaudrin and Burns and the advantages that they may have against Villanova's point guard, whomever that may be, and then Jermaine Samuels and Jeremiah Robinson Earl inside. How much more conducive is this matchup on the whole for Pat Kelsey and Winthrop against a compromised Villanova unit? Well, I think if you asked him, and we have, have because we've uh, we've talked to him quite a bit this week as you might imagine he will constantly say well the focus is on us on us it's on what we do um we're not really concerned about Villanova although we do recognize that they're an incredibly talented team they have a hall of fame coach they're so well prepared and their 13th guy is better than a lot of big south teams number one guy and you'll, you'll hear a lot of that this week but you look at this team and it's so easy to if you get a 5-12 matchup or sometimes even lower than 12 you you can kind of pigeonhole teams. You can look at teams and say, well, they've got this weakness here, or they can't defend against this type of player here because they don't have enough size. They don't have enough depth, whatever else. This is a Winthrop team where if you look at their 12th player, that being Tanari Lane, he's a three-star recruit. He's a guy who in limited minutes this year made some solid contributions. They have defenders. Uh, we talked about Chandler and the way he defends one through five DJs. Uh, a, a paid defender. And then you have guys like Chase Claxton and Michael Anumba. And, and you are familiar with the Claxton name with Nick being part of the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, Chase is very much like him. He's a six, seven guy who can defend on the perimeter, which is something that you don't often see from teams of this ilk. Uh, usually if you have a six, seven guy, he's playing the five. Chase is a six, seven guy who plays out on the perimeter. And in fact, last year in the big South championship game, with Jermaine Marrow for Hampton, one of the nation's top scorers, Chase really locked him down. And the defensive job he did on him in the second half was incredible. And I don't, I don't think it got enough attention. You have Chase, you have Michael Anumba, who's a player who has Italian and English roots, a guy who's 6'5 and can also defend pretty much anywhere on the floor. It's just 
this team doesn't fit the mold of really any other team that Pat's brought to a tournament. It doesn't fit the mold of really any team just because you have all these different guys that do different things and none of them really can be pinned down to, well, okay, this person can only do this one thing. Uh, the versatility has been so key in building this club. And I think it might serve them benefit when we start watching them play uh, Friday night. Now, Brian, it's been talked about that this could be the best team in Big South history and maybe definitely the best since Greg Marshall's 2006-07 group that beat Notre Dame in the first round. You've covered the Big South for several seasons. Have you seen a team this dynamic and this diverse go through the conference the way winter pass? No, and it's crazy because you think back to Scott Cherry's high point teams winning four Big South titles in a row in the regular season. And, and there have been so many other really good teams that have come through this league, but there's been none like this one. And you think this is really built like a high major team. And it's amazing that guys like this have been able to come to this school to buy into what Pat Kelsey's looking to do. Uh, you have a guy in Kyle Zunick, for instance, who's a senior who's from Australia and a guy that probably could play more regularly at other schools. He's a starter. He only averages about five a game. He's looked upon to do some things, to take charges, to be that kind of in-your-face defender. His contributions are largely unheralded because of how good this team is. Um, I've seen a lot of other really good teams in this league. I've seen the Asheville teams with Andrew Rousey, who went on to Marquette, and I've seen the Gardner-Webb team in, in you know, that magical season that they had a couple of years. There, there are all these other teams that come to mind, but none really like this one. So when Kevin McGeehan made that comment, the Campbell coach, after, after the championship game and said that this was the best team the Big South had ever seen, he hadn't really been around the league uh, for, you know, the entirety of its history, but it's pretty easy to see where he might say that. And he's had some good teams himself, especially with Chris Clemens the past two or three years. We're talking to Brian Wilmer of College Hoops Digest, taking a look at Winthrop and the Eagles' chances against Villanova, the popular 5-12 pick. Brian, we'll switch gears a little bit. We'll go into the ACC, and we just had Justin Mattis on earlier before you talking a little bit about Clemson. But when you look at the seven teams that are in the tournament from the ACC, which one, and we have two four seeds in Florida State and Virginia that are coming in on opposite ends of the spectrum, FSU having played in the ACC tournament championship and UVA having been knocked out due to a positive COVID test for the semifinal matchup against Georgia Tech, getting into Indianapolis on Friday and then playing on Saturday. Which of the seven do you feel has the best chance to make a deep run? Oh, gosh. If you had asked me before the brackets came out, I would have said Florida State and not hesitated at all. Uh, that's just such a good team. It's a well-coached team. They're so adherent to everything they do. And then you get the bracket and they look up and see UNCG on the other side, which Wes Miller has done such a great job in Greensboro. I know that you know, with all the Carolina people saying to me that we hope that Wes is our new coach when, when Roy leaves – uh, you know, he's, he's a Carolina legacy. He's done incredible things with that club. That is one of the toughest 413 matchups you could possibly envision. Of course, Oklahoma State and Liberty, another. But that Florida State-UNCG matchup, that really poses a problem for the Seminoles. Then you look at Georgia Tech. I would have said initially that they looked good. And then, you know, Moses Wright for Georgia Tech. They do still have a lot of veteran leadership on that club. 
but having to go up against a tough Loyola team in the first round and you don't have Moses Wright, that doesn't help either. So then you start to shift toward Virginia and you think, well, okay, Virginia looks good, but as you mentioned, they had the COVID problem. They have to face Ohio in the first round, who is no pushover themselves. Then if they get past that, they have to go against probably Creighton, although UCSB is a good club. And then you have Gonzaga looming in the next round if they make it that far. So we've already seen what Gonzaga can do to Virginia. They've already boat raced them once. I don't think that Tony Bennett would relish that uh, that matchup again. Then you start looking at Carolina, for instance. Carolina plays Wisconsin, which is always going to be a rock fight. And then they would have to face Baylor in the second round. This is going to sound odd, but I really... When we, when we look at the dust clearing at the end of this, I think Virginia Tech has the best chance to, uh, to advance. And I'll say why, because I've watched Mike Young and I've, I've covered so many of Mike Young's teams and I've seen what he's done with building Wofford and now building Virginia Tech. This is a team that is going to defend. It's going to be in your face. It's going to cause you problems all night long when you play a Mike Young coach team. They have some veteran leadership. Radford's back for them now, and they really started to come on a bit. Uh, the Florida matchup is not a great one, and I don't relish having to go up against Chris Holtman uh, potentially in the second round, but there are a lot of really bad matchups for ACC teams, as I think we've chronicled, and then, of course, Justin went into the Clemson matchup. Uh, there, there are a lot of reasons to not like Clemson in that matchup, which brings up another question about Brad Brannell's future that we won't address on this podcast. Clemson against Rutgers, and as Justin alluded to, Brian, and you you hit the nail on the head there, a battle of like-minded teams. We'll see what Amir Sims can do against Miles Johnson inside. But what about Syracuse as the 11 seed right on top of that Clemson-Rutgers matchup? Jim Beheim, every time he gets a double-digit seed, is somehow able to pull off a second weekend run. Do you see it happening with San Diego State and most likely West Virginia waiting in the wings? I don't. Um, even with that press, that zone, uh, the different defensive looks that they throw at you that Virginia's had problems with and so many other teams have had problems with. It's, it baffles me how many elite teams cannot contest a zone. I don't understand it. Maybe I'll eventually get that answer. But you look at that Aztec club, Brian Dutcher has been so beneficial to that club, kind of carrying the torch after Steve Fisher left. Um, they are always competitive. They're always good. And then if you get past them, you mentioned having to see Huggy in the second round. And that Mountaineer club, that's a really bad matchup for Syracuse. I, I don't know whom in the uh, bracketing gods the ACC angered this year, but they really don't have a good matchup anywhere in the bunch. If you start looking around, even uh, you know the 413 matchups like we chronicled, not, even those aren't really all that beneficial to the ACC. Usually, they'll have at least one matchup where you can look at it and say, yeah, they're, they're probably okay there. I don't know that there are any of those in this bracket. That might be the price to pay for Duke missing out for the first time since 1995, but who knows? <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's, maybe it's Pete Gaudette coming back and I don't know. It, it could very well be. We're talking to Brian Wilmer of college hoops digest, taking a look at Winthrop, the ACC, some of the trendy bracket spots. And should Winthrop advance, Pat Kelsey will be the topic of conversation in coaching carousel. Actually, he already is. He's been linked to a couple of jobs already in this offseason. If Winthrop makes a run, or even if Winthrop doesn't make a run, do you see potentially 
a, a changing of the guard in Rock Hill where Pat might take a job like a Charleston or a George Mason, for instance, and usher in a new era in Rock Hill? You know, I've been thinking about this for years. Uh, it goes all the way back to the UMass debacle. And uh, he's taken a lot of heat for that. I think fairly in some cases and unfairly in others, there were a lot of internal issues within the UMass program. And I think that some of those may have caused him pause. And if that's the case, you can sort of understand that part of it, at, at least. Although the optics of it were terrible. When you have a press conference scheduled and all of a sudden you find out a few minutes before that it's not going to happen, it's tough to really live that down. Uh, that said, he has really developed a sense of family in Rock Hill. His, his kids are really entrenched in the community. He's got a church. He's got people around him who have really kind of built that support structure, which he really needed when he got to Winthrop. He was kind of a man adrift when he got to Rock Hill. Uh, he just lost Skip Prosser, his mentor, his, uh, you know, basically the reason he got into coaching. Uh, he had just passed and he really, he was kind of more filled with questions and answers. He actually stepped away from the game for a bit so that he could refocus and recalibrate and get back into things. So if you fast forward ahead these many seasons, I think it makes sense for him because he's a marketer, first and foremost. If you ever talk to him, you'll realize he is a marketer. As, as effective as he is as a coach, he is more so as a marketer. He will drive around campus and you know buy students coffee when he's able to do it, obviously, and been able to do that this year. But uh, he will dress up in funny outfits and you know do all these different things trying to get students out. And here, the problem he runs into is that the student base is just not all that engaged with Winthrop Athletics. And part of it is the fact that the Winthrop Coliseum is a couple of miles away from the main campus and students don't want to ride a bus over or drive over or whatever. I think that's part of it. I think another problem is Winthrop is largely a commuter school. There are a lot of South Carolina kids who will come here, they'll take classes Monday through Thursday, then they'll go home for the weekend and they go back to their own hometowns. And there's just not that lively of an environment on the Winthrop campus. And it's really starting to bleed through into the, uh, the Winthrop Coliseum atmosphere. Um, the one time I've really seen it like he wants it was when they played Gardner-Webb in the semifinals in 2017. That place was just incredible. I could not hear myself think for the entirety of that game. It was so loud in there because you had 5,000 people. You had a lot of Gardner-Webb people who made the one-hour trip from Boiling Springs. You had a lot of Winthrop people. And it was just, it was one of the best atmospheres I've ever seen. And they haven't been able to duplicate it. So I think if he starts to assess what he wants from a program that he leads, there are a lot of things he can't get here. He can get money here. He can get, uh, you know, athletic department leadership support here. Ken Halpin, the athletic director, has been incredibly supportive of everything he's tried to do with this program. It's just that atmosphere that he really wants from a big-time program, he can't get here. Now, can he get it at George Mason? Maybe. We've seen that in 2006. We've seen that in other years. Um, can he get it at Charleston? Again, maybe. Can he get it at the latest job for which he's rumored, which is Cincinnati, which cracks me up considering he's a Xavier guy. Uh, there's talk that John Brandon may be out with the Bearcats and, and uh, Kelsey may be the name up there. I don't know if I can envision him coaching Cincinnati, but he could absolutely get it there. I, I think when we do a postmortem on all this, if he does take another job, I think that really at the root of all this is just the atmosphere in Rock Hill and how the students turned out or didn't turn out and how frustrated that really made him. Talking to Brian Wilmer, College Hoops Digest, covering Winthrop, covering the Big South, dabbling a little bit in the ACC, taking a look at some of the 
popular upset picks around the bracket and where some other teams outside the New York area may fare. Brian, you and I are going to have a late Friday night. Rutgers and Winthrop are tipping off about a half hour apart from each other. So we'll both have some post-midnight pieces to look forward to as a Friday night turns into Saturday morning. But until then, thank you so much for coming on and spending some time with us. Of course, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And uh, maybe one of these days we'll actually get to meet in a gym somewhere. Let's cross our fingers. Soon enough. Until then, stay safe, stay blessed, my friend. Thank you.